My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. I'd like you to do me a favor. Take a look right now at whatever your favorite piece of modern technology is. It could be an iPhone, a laptop, a wearable device like a Fitbit, a video game system, a smart appliance like a refrigerator or an oven, whatever you like. Now take a real look at it. Is it pristine? Is it sleek and perfect? Does its design go to great lengths to appear as futuristic and streamlined as possible, even if that design has nothing whatsoever to do with its actual purpose. Even if that actual purpose is to, say, get filled up with literal decaying garbage every day. And that brings me to the Lomi, which is a device made by a Canadian company called Pella. It bills itself as a smarter way to deal with garbage. In short, the Lomi is an incredibly clean, sleek, beautiful piece of modern technology that promises to turn something yucky and disgusting that also happens to be necessary for life into a spotless, sparkling process that you never have to think about again. Which is what all technology promises, really. The Lomi just takes it to the natural extreme. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is Interconnected on The Big Story, Part 4, When Technology Meets Death and Decay. Tynan Stewart is an independent journalist based in Fort Worth, Texas. He wrote about the Lomi and by extension, technology's relationship to decay in Real Life Magazine. Hey, Tyna. Hey, Jordan. How's it going? It's going really well. Uh, I hope this topic isn't too uh, isn't too depressing, but I, I feel like our urge to conquer death is kind of universal. No, I would agree with that. It, it seems like there's a long history in humanity of trying to find ways to overcome our eventual demise, whether that's the search for the fountain of youth or in more recent times, sort of Silicon Valley's quest to find technologies that might, you know, bring an end to aging as we know it. Listen, we're all going to live forever in the metaverse. So uh, we can start with that. But no, first, why don't we start with a gadget at the center of this? Because I found the way you drew the the parallels in your piece to be fascinating. So maybe just first, uh, describe the Lomi to me. What does it look like? Sure. I guess I'll first describe sort of how it's pitched by the company that makes it. So it is a home composting machine. I might compare it to a bread machine. It's a sort of a sparkling white appliance. There's not much on it, no screen, just a little button that you press to start the cycles. And it's used to dispose of food scraps that you generate from your cooking, right? And it's pitched to people who maybe live in apartments or in urban settings where they might not be able to otherwise compost their food. 
And the whole ethos is to divert sort of food waste that would otherwise go straight to the trash into perhaps a more eco-friendly direction. So they say that they're turning food scraps into dirt, I believe is the word they use. And they recommend that you put the dirt on your plants or, or put it in a green bin program or, or sort of throw it out. So that, that's sort of how they, they pitch themselves to their potential consumers. It's a composter, in other words. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So why would somebody use a Lomi instead of then just a regular green bag of compost or a green bin program or, you know, a pile of mulch in the backyard? Like, what's supposed to make it different? So that's sort of what interested me about about Lomi's pitch to, you know, potential buyers. The the marketing pitch that Lomi makes is that, look, food waste is sort of gross and smelly. If you put it in a green bin, uh, it's going to rot within a few days and you don't want that sticking up your kitchen. So what we're going to do is we're going to take your food scraps, put it in this machine, grind it up, dehydrate it, and essentially do away with the smells that would come from, say, a green bin program. That's that's their pitch. Does that work? I I don't think it works. I didn't approach this essay I wrote for Real Life Magazine as a consumer expose. I didn't right. come out and say, hey, um, Lomi's a scam, don't use it. I do think that based on what scientists and, and people who are far more knowledgeable about the science of composting than I am, it does seem clear that what they're promising, sort of overnight transformation of food scraps into compost, doesn't seem biologically possible. What is that biological process? Uh, leaving Lomi aside, like compost is supposed to stink and sit there, right? Like that's what it does. Right. Compost is, I guess as a basic overview, is when organic matter goes through a process of decomposition. Now that involves many things. So it involves microorganisms working on the food and involves um, sometimes worms add to the, the process of the composting. And in certain situations, yeah, it does give off like a pretty major stink. Although I do want to stress that if you properly manage a normal compost pile and give it plenty of oxygen, it normally won't won't stink that much. Um, but yeah, it, the Lomi really does seem to be a, an attempt to sidestep the things we would normally associate with, you know, composting, sort of earthy smells and maybe some unpleasant smells. And I can see why people would want to avoid that. Sure. And I mean, that makes sense. But does what the Lomi produces, and look, I'm not, I'm also not a consumer expert here, so I'm not trying to, to tell people to buy it or not buy it either. But I guess my question is, is does it do what it says on the box? Does it turn your organic waste into viable compost that will help your plants grow? What happens, what happens if I put the Lomi waste on my plants? Is it fertilizer? It's not clear to me whether it's fertilizer or not, honestly. And no, I don't think it accomplishes what it what some of its advertising claims have have said it could, right? Like I originally it was it was funded through a campaign and the slogan of the campaign was turn your food waste into compost with the push of a button, right? I do not think it accomplishes that and it's interesting actually because the company's advertising and sort of marketing strategy seems to have pulled back from that, right? So now they they say that it produces dirt, which is a more ambiguous term. I, I guess it's accurate because dirt is just sort of, you know, waste product and it's all grimy and gritty. And that does that does seem to be what the Lomi produces. Whether you should put it on your plants, I don't know. I wouldn't put it on my plants. 
But it, it does it does not seem to produce the the sort of quote unquote black gold that is so prized by gardeners. And here's where we're gonna get into a little bit of the bigger picture and why we wanted to talk to you about, you know, tech and and death and decay in general. So who is this product for then, given that it's not going to produce like the viable fertilizer type of compost we're talking about? And if it's not going to do that, why wouldn't people just throw out the food then or toss it in the nearest green bin or whatever, get it out of their house? There's no real need for this product, yet people are buying it. Right. And I think that's really interesting. It seems to be pitched at a certain type of very eco-conscious urbanite, the type of person who lives in a, a situation where they don't really know how to deal with the, the food waste they're producing, right? You can't get around eating food. You're, you're going to produce food waste. And I think people are more and more aware that food waste is a major contributor to climate change when it is put into the normal garbage streams. It goes to landfills. It rots in landfills, produces a lot of methane. Mm-hmm. And a certain type of person does not like contributing to that process. We don't like thinking that our actions are you know, making climate change worse. So I think it appeals to that type of person who wants to do good and wants to change their daily habits so they're more sustainable or eco-friendly. And also that person just doesn't want to deal with the mess. Correct. Yes. So that goes back to the other main thread or theme in Lomi's advertising, which is, yeah, food waste in general is just gross, right? That is one of their big pitches. They say that the, the company behind it, Lomi is for people who don't like cleaning up. Lomi is for people who think garbage is gross. Their advertisements are filled with these great visuals of, you know, leaky, smelly plastic trash cans full of, uh, full of sludge and rotten banana peels. And uh, they really appeal to a sense of disgust in in the sort of view of those ads. Right. Right. It's like you were disgusted by garbage. Here is a solution to that. And at the same time, it is a way to make you feel better about your sort of contribution to climate change. Now, can you draw the link for us from that kind of approach to marketing and the way that Silicon Valley sees uh, messiness, death and decay in general? Right. So I, th- I think it, it, it's probably worth stressing. Um, Lomi itself is not a, strictly a Silicon Valley company. Right. It's homemade. It's Canadian. Right. Based in British Columbia. Uh, its parent company is a company known as Pila. Um, and there, it seems like they've been in sort of tech adjacent for a while. Their first big product was biodegradable smartphone cases. But it's, it's worth stressing that the Silicon Valley ideology, for lack of a better word, of disruption, of we're going to break things and change things through tech, not just limited to California. It seems like it's more of a a state of mind than anything else. But I make this link in the essay that I wrote between Lomi's general distaste for decay and decomposition and a trend that has been very prominent in Silicon Valley for at least a decade now, in in which the owners and founders and and the folks who have gotten rich off of technology have poured their efforts into avoiding death and its attendant decay and and decomposition entirely. Can you give us some examples of that? Sure. So the founders of Google have poured lots and lots of money into a company that was originally called Calico with the goal of finding ways to slow down aging or, or at least prevent the sort of physiological side effects of aging, right? The diseases of aging, the increased risk for heart attack, et cetera. 
On the one end, you've got the, the folks who are sort of attempting to slow down aging or stop the side effects of aging. And on the other end, you've got folks who foresee a merger of human and artificial intelligence, an uploading of brains to the quote-unquote cloud, right? And I think Elon Musk and his company Neuralink is one example of, of, of that. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This is where it gets really interesting because one of the things you do is you point out this is not unique to, like, the 21st century uh, cutting-edge Silicon Valley. Like, how far back does our rejection or, or attempt to overthrow death and decay actually go? I think it's pretty old. It, it really seems like humanity has has an almost instinctual aversion to to death right and I, I think we i think we all know that on a sort of instinctual level like we we all we don't want to die we're afraid of death but the example i like to cite is sort of the search for the fountain of youth right sure in sort of 14th and 15th centuries when european explorers were first colonizing america and even further back than that the attempt to Avoid death appears in all sorts of ancient Greek and even older myths and legends. I think possibly the oldest, the oldest myth in its story in human history of um, of Gilgamesh includes Gilgamesh attempting to unsuccessfully avoid death. Right. So it, it seems like this impulse is very deeply ingrained in our culture or in our psyche or what have you. Beyond just avoiding death, though, there's also something there about avoiding the process of decay or degradation um, of the human body, right? And I think I think the compost example is a great one because anybody who's uh, used or been around organic compost knows that, yeah, it can get messy, but that's the point, and that's what happens during the cycle of life and rebirth. And so many of the technological uh, solutions that you just mentioned and, and that are also out there are not necessarily just trying to live forever, but but trying to avoid the aging process and decay process entirely. Yeah, I'd say that's true. I mean, look, I I understand the impulse, and I'm not even necessarily saying it's it's a terrible thing. Um, I I think it is very scary to human beings, especially maybe even younger human beings or human beings who haven't really started aging, to know that. We are eventually going to break down. We are going to sort of lose control of our bodies that we value so much. And that's a very scary thing. So I understand where these these sort of impulses to avoid it come from. At the same time, it does seem like we are in some ways in, in the pursuit of this. I feel like we risk further alienating ourselves from our environments, from the ecosystems which sort of rely on I, I used the uh, the image, which is not my original image, but the idea of the wheel of life, right? Like we cannot escape, and it, it seems it seems like it it may be a mistake to try to artificially divorce ourselves entirely from the sort of natural process of aging and life and aging and death. That that's sort of where I land at the end of the piece. One of the images in your piece 
is the bucket on the farm post. Can you tell us about that and kind of what it signifies and how many people have that kind of bucket in their lives right now? Right. So I took that image from a, a very wonderful essay by the farmer and poet Wendell Berry. He's a writer based in Kentucky and he very much uh, he very much practices what he preaches, so to speak, and that he writes a lot about localism and rural life and living in more in harmony with ecosystems while also sort of maintaining his, 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 uh, his own farm, which he's done for decades. And in this essay, the work of local culture, he has this really beautiful image of sort of really battered, um, he uses the word galvanized bucket that, that hangs on his a fence post on his farm and has been hanging there for as long as anyone around him can remember. Um, and he, he writes about the way that, you know, leaves have fallen into the bucket and rain has fallen on it and other organic material has sort of accumulated. And slowly over time, this organic matter has decomposed into, I guess, what would we, call, we would call compost, um, but he, he refers to as hummus. And it's a very, I find it a very beautiful image and I use it as essentially an inverse of Lomi. They, they are both human containers, right? Um, and they both attempt to participate in this cycle of decomposition and death to produce something that we think is valuable, right? Some sort of compost as a result. But where the Lomi attempts to shortcut what we would probably think of as a sort of more natural or, or slow cycle, the, the bucket is working at a much slower time scale. And it's interesting because it's that is that is not even its purpose, right? Someone probably just left a bucket there and forgot about it. And slowly over time, nature has has worked, has has done what it does and incorporated the bucket into the ecosystem. To answer the second part of your question, whether or how many people have something like um, this kind of bucket in their lives, I don't know that too many of us do. I mean, I certainly don't. I, I live in a big city. I do have a yard and I have been trying to compost, um, but I don't have anything that operates on that sort of very slow time scale. I, I, I Perhaps I can only speak for myself, but it does not seem to me that many people have that sort of bucket in their lives. The last thing I want to talk to you about is what happens next? And, uh, you know, I, you're not a technology expert. I've talked to lots of them for this special week. I'm not a technology expert either. But I think one thing we can we can both agree on is that it keeps getting better. It keeps getting closer to what it sets out to achieve. You know, y- you've described everything from the fountain of youth to up to where we are with some of our current technology. Um, eventually, somebody's going to be able probably to make something like a Lomi that actually makes compost, or at the very least to take an opportunity to try to upload somebody's consciousness into a robot or whatever. Like at some point, there's going to become an inflection point where where people will have a choice of whether or not they want to embrace this. And do we even, are we even in touch enough now with death and decay to make an informed choice uh, when we're given it? You know, I don't want to make too many predictions about the future. One thing I will say is that if the, if that sort of technological progress um, or innovation is achieved, let's say people are able to upload their minds to the cloud or we do figure out how to 
um, extend human lifespan beyond its sort of present hard limit. Um, I I don't I I don't necessarily know that that in itself is truly a bad thing. What I am worried about, though, is that this will take place in a world that is already extremely stratified along lines of wealth, um, class, race, etc. And I, I talk a little I talk a little bit about this in the piece, but it does not seem plausible to me that the people who will sort of produce or control these technologies will necessarily want or even think to extend this to the rest of humanity, right? I do think, I, I, I genuinely do believe that um, Lomi sees itself as, as something that it, you know, it wants as many people as possible to, to sort of buy its products and it genuinely thinks it's doing good, right? So I don't want to lump Lomi or, or a, a, an eventual perfect countertop composter in with um, Silicon Valley tech billionaires who want to upload themselves to the cloud, but I do worry about this type of technology being introduced into a society that already has so many problems and in which existing lifespans are already so desperate, right? I'll just end by saying I think there are other ways that we can think about um, expanding most people's lifespans that we we absolutely know work, like providing better access to clean water or uh, universal health care, right? Like these things that we know will extend most people's lifespans. And that just seems like a better use of resources and time and effort than attempting a technological fix to aging and death to me. That's a great way to end it. And I'll just note as we close that while you were saying that, I went and looked up how much a Lomi was going for uh, right now. And so they may want to save the world and uh, they may want people to have them, but $499 US is not going to get a lot of people home composting, even if it did work, right? It's a bit pricey. Yeah, I mean, I'm not rushing out to buy one. <laughs> Thanks so much for this, Tynan. Great chat. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for uh, for the interest in my piece and for inviting me on. Tynan Stewart, writing in Real Life magazine. That was the big story. We have one more episode to go in this special series. I hope you're enjoying it. It is certainly helping me clarify my relationship to the modern world. If you want to let us know what you think of it, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at thebigstorypodcast.ca. There's a contact us form there. You can also find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can just email us, hello, at thebigstorypodcast.ca, or you can call and tell us with your voice, a very human thing to do, 416-935-5935. If you are enjoying this series or if you're hating it, one thing we'd love to know is what would you like to hear us explore in our next special series? All ideas are welcome. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll finish this up tomorrow.